South Africa's oldest coal power plant, closed recently. There are plans for green jobs, but the reality right now feels different. That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. For today's show, we want to share an episode from Heat of the Moment, which just launched its third season. Heat of the Moment is a foreign policy podcast in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds that highlights stories from the front lines of the fight against climate change. I'm really liking this third season, and it's entirely about what are called just transitions. These are places that relied on fossil fuels, that then transitioned to green energy, and ideally they involve the communities most affected by this change. It's one of these things that sounds great, but it's really hard to do. For example, how can you do a just transition with the least amount of damage to workers who are in fossil fuel industries? To kick off this season, heat of the moment goes to South Africa, Reporter Elna Schutz visits the country's oldest coal power plant days after it closed. First, you'll hear Elna chat with me about what that was like. And then we're going to play the episode, the beginning of a three-part story. So tell me about how you found out about this story in South Africa with the coal plant. I think the just energy transition is a story that's at the forefront of many journalists' minds around the world. So when foreign policy approached me and said they were looking at just energy transitions around the world, it wasn't surprising because there are very interesting things happening here. And we sort of broke it down from there exactly what the different elements would be that are important for listeners to understand. And then I got in my car, got out there and tried to find those people. So how did you do that? So I knew fairly soon that Komati would be my first choice. It's the first power station being decommissioned in South Africa. But it was not easy to find contacts there because Komati is a little bit in the middle of nowhere and not necessarily the biggest publicized place on the planet, even though a lot of South Africans rely on it for their power or have in the past. So I had to contact all kinds of people to try to find somebody on the ground. As you probably know, it's usually easy to find spokespeople, but finding an ordinary mother who worries about the future of her daughter, a little bit tougher. And what actually ended up happening is I heard there was going to be a meeting in Kamati. And up to, I think, two days before, I still wasn't sure when it was happening, what was happening. And so I just booked a guest house and went. (laughs) And something that is very important to understand, I think, about doing stories in South Africa is that South Africans are very friendly and there's lots of processes that people want to go through to gain your trust. There were lots of coffees or like off-the-record chats to really win the trust of the community. Um, You really want to show that you're there, that you want to listen to people, that you're willing to listen to the different sides of the argument. And that trust is not always given immediately or freely. So what was like one of these coffees like? Who are you trying to convince? So often there are people who work for the local government or hold some position of authority in the community that are very well connected, but that obviously want to protect their community and won't just connect you with someone. So 
for instance, I had an off-the-record conversation with some local authority figures um, or elders, you might call them, who taught me all kinds of things off the record <laughs> that that may or may not have made it into the story just to sort of test me and see, like, who am I? What am I wanting from the community? Am I just going to take their story and go? And And I understand that. So you were there on the ground very soon after this plant closed. Yes. What was that like? That was really interesting. And it was around the time where big international conversations about climate change were happening. And the news headlines the day I left were that Komati was getting these large investments. I found it ironic and, and kind of serendipitous that I was the only journalist in Komati you know, having just spent a few days there, realizing how in the middle of nowhere it is and how unheard, unheard some of the locals feel. And then seeing these headlines, seeing every news anchor around the country is talking about this place. And I am actually sitting in it and it feels very different to the headlines, if that makes sense. Obviously, both can be true. But that was an interesting experience. And I think the crux of that is... There are so many wonderful plans, so many people working really hard to try and make sure this that a very complex equation tries to add up. But that only means so much to somebody who doesn't know how they're going to feed their children this week because all they've ever known is this power plant. And now you are, to them, suddenly shutting it down and to them only in a few years doing anything emotionally for community, it can be very harsh. Do you think part of why it took you a while to gain trust is because there's this perception that the media is just pro-green energy, and so they're just sort of hmm. in, inherently pro the coal plant closing? I do think that might be a part of it. Um, it's also just South Africans love long chats and getting to know <laughs> each other, perhaps. I think also that as with many countries, there is a rural and urban divide, culturally, socioeconomically. And so an area like Mpumalanga, the coal mining area in South Africa, is often spoken about, but that doesn't mean journalists are necessarily driving out there. And um, I remember one of the first meetings I met some people at was really interesting because I had tried to contact all of those people. But being in the room with them, suddenly all these people said, oh, yeah, I've seen your emails. Here you are. How nice to actually meet you. And it opened all these doors just because I had randomly showed up. And and so I do think what you're saying is true to the degree where people in rural areas maybe don't feel as seen and heard by the media and if, and when media covers them, it's, you know, a news interview with a specialist, not necessarily Elna with her microphone asking them, what are your hopes for your future? How did you get here? And really spending time with them. And so for you, this urban journalist coming to this town in rural South Africa, whose power plant is about to close, and you're the only person there, what surprised you the most? there's only a few streets there's chickens on the road I think that just being able to see this small village or town with this giant power plant over it was a really good 
image for me to see, you know, the man on the ground versus the big corporation, if you want to put it that way. And then there was a lot of misunderstanding, perhaps, on the ground of people saying, you know, the coal plant has been here. Why do we need to change it? Why do you need to take this away? Renewable energy has less jobs, all kinds of assumptions that may or may not be true. Something I really take away from these pieces of reporting is what does inclusion mean when it comes to these kinds of big processes that affect lots of people in the whole country? Because there was an instance where there was this wonderful stakeholder engagement, but on a Zoom call, and people in Kamati don't have Wi-Fi and have to pay for data to access a Zoom call. So they wouldn't have seen a Facebook post about it. So there wasn't a single person from Kamati, to my knowledge, on the call about Kamati. Whereas if you put a pamphlet in the local library, you might reach everybody. So it's those kinds of ideas of what does it mean for community to really be heard and seen in these processes. Elna Schutz. And now, here's the premiere episode of the third season of Heat of the Moment. This is Heat of the Moment, a foreign policy podcast in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds. I'm your host, John Sutter. For the past two seasons, we've taken you around the world to see where individuals, governments, and institutions are investing in a greener future and trying to find some innovative approaches to tackling the climate crisis. We're going to continue that this season, following reporters on the front lines where change is already underway. But this season, we're adding a twist to our reporting. We're focusing on one very important aspect of the climate crisis, this idea of a just transition that we have to transform society as well as the way we produce energy in order to deal with the climate crisis. This strikes a personal chord with me. I grew up in Oklahoma, which is an oil and gas state, and I've also spent a lot of my time as a reporter in coal towns in Wyoming and Utah and elsewhere. We need to transition away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. There's no hedging on that. But this shift has to be done with a sense of fairness in mind, too both for fossil fuel workers whose jobs will be lost, and people all over the world, from cobalt miners to families struggling to pay their power bills, who need a voice in this transition. The shift to net zero should help ease systemic inequities, not worsen them. We've been hearing more and more about this idea of a just transition these days. New legislation is popping up to support the creation of green jobs. Countries like the US and the UK are taking early steps to promote justice amid this shift on their own, and they're funding projects in other parts of the world, like South Africa and Indonesia. South Africa's plan to kickstart its transition from coal to renewable energy will need 46.5 billion US dollars. And that's more than five times the 8.5 billion dollars Western nations have pledged to the project over the next three to five years. Later in this episode, we're going to hear from reporter Elna Schutz in South Africa about what's happening to that country's energy industry, which has just received a big infusion of just transition dollars. The idea of a just transition often is associated with coal miners and other fossil fuel workers whose jobs are going away as we move to cleaner energy sources like wind and solar. 
Bracing to go green, the mining industry weighing the potential impact of President Biden's green energy push. And workers in the industry are beginning to worry about the fate of their jobs. But this is a topic that's so much bigger than that. As we'll hear throughout the season, this concept encapsulates broader ideals of righting past wrongs. Wrongs like racism or sexism, colonialism and classism. It is an issue of fairness for future generations. Anyone who has children, anyone who has grandchildren. That's Benjamin Sovacool a researcher and energy policy professor at Boston University and the University of Sussex. The United Nations estimates that 80 million jobs are at risk of being lost because of global warming by 2030. And most notably, that's happening in the global south. The risk of doing nothing to address these challenges is huge. So I think it raises these really pesky issues of, well, who is to blame and who should do what? Who's responsible? In a situation like this, is it historical emitters like Europe and the U.S.? Or is it going to be the future emitters? 80% of future greenhouse gas emissions by end of century will be developing countries. They won't be the U.S. and Europe. So who? Who should do it? And that's where this idea of a just transition comes in. Making sure that the changes that are taking place to move away from fossil fuels aren't just benefiting the wealthy nations. Well, justice is great, but you also have to ask justice for whom? It can't just be justice for Americans or justice for homeowners or justice for ratepayers, right? Because that will create further injustices in the attempt to do something just. And that's the danger, to make sure that we're not just perpetuating someone's version of justice over other people's views. What's like a tangible case study that you look to, you know, as you're thinking about this idea of a just transition? Like I've, I've asked a number of people about other points in history where like a, a huge shift in an economy took place. And I have never heard like a great example of where that transition happened and it was done in a just way or where that was really like a, a big part of the discussion. I'm wondering what you look to in terms of like helpful case studies, either from the past or like things that are going on right now that just maybe aren't applied as widely as they should be. So I think the two that stand out, one in the global north, one in the global south, England ran a really nice program to eradicate fuel poverty called Warm Front, which saw millions of UK homes get out of energy poverty in a five-year period. And it was targeting low-income homes. It was doing all sorts of great things like better insulation, better windows, better gas heating, better boilers, and the health benefits, uh, the comfort benefits, uh, and the energy savings benefits were monumental. It's like for every pound put into this program, it was like 30 pounds of benefits. But there's a good example of like government-backed program that lifted millions of people out of energy poverty in ways that are still benefiting the UK because a lot of those retrofits are good for 30 years or 40 years. In the global south, Ecuador had an amazing program called Yasuni. And this was perhaps one of the best examples of a really visionary policy. The idea was that they discovered a bunch of oil right below one of the most precious biodiversity hotspots on the world. And the president of Ecuador, Correa, at that time said, I'll tell you what, we will not touch it if the international community gives us half the value of the oil in tradable credits managed by the UN. And moreover, they were going to reinvest the value of those credits into protecting indigenous people, retraining their workforce for renewables, and rapidly installing energy efficiency and other low-carbon sources of energy. So a great, brilliant program that ran for about five years, raised about 100 million euros before they had to cancel it because the international community didn't follow through. What sort of, and, and I'm, it's, it just feels like a massive undertaking in all the ways, in terms of the just transition piece of it and ensuring that, you know, that that's 
taken into account? Like, I have to imagine that money is a huge part of it. What is this cost like on a macro level? Who should pay for it? What are your thoughts on like the money side of a just transition? So it can be framed as a cost or an opportunity. We're talking about $100 trillion. Yes, one zero zero trillion dollars will need to be invested in net zero infrastructure by 2050. And oftentimes I say this number and people are like, what? <laughs> However, um, global GDP last year is 102 trillion. So think of it that way. We only need one year's worth of economic activity and we have everything we need to fight climate change. And it's not a problem of technology. We have many of the tools we need, energy efficiency standards and audits, right? better boilers and, and heat pumps, wind and solar and hydrogen and better electric vehicles and better forms of agriculture um, and better land use management techniques and better waste programs. So we've kind of, we, we've got them and they create great opportunity. So the United Nations has framed this net zero challenge as the greatest commercial opportunity of our age. Think of all the money to be made if you can crack that net zero nut. Hmm. Are, are you optimistic or hopeful that those things will come to pass and that net zero is possible? Or do you think this has kind of just become an, a hollow talking point? I think it can be both. I do think net zero will be very much possible in countries that have very strong policy regimes. So I mentioned the five Nordic countries. The UK actually has very ambitious net zero targets that are enshrined in their 2008 Climate Change Act. You have some other countries like Costa Rica and Panama that are net zero already just because of the way their economies work. Um, and you have others that are racing to be there in the next 10 or 20 years. Germany, France, California, which I like to treat as kind of separate, uh, <laughs> Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, they all have roadmaps. But for every leader, there's a laggard. There's a Saudi Arabia. There are Russia's. There are other countries that are seeking to block and thwart low carbon action. And the climate doesn't care, right? The climate doesn't care where emissions come from, right? A ton from China has the same impact as a ton from the United States. Uh, and so there's the danger is that, well, these, there are going to be these leaders. They are going to be inspiring stories. And I think we will see some fantastic shifts in the next 10 years in terms of building performance, EVs, electricity supply, and heat are all decarbonizing. I mean, the projections for battery electric vehicles are crazy. We had 1 million battery electric vehicles on the road in 2015. It's going to be 1,000 million by 2050. We will go from 1 million to a billion in our lifetime. That's massive. That is almost unheard of. Only things like mobile phones and the internet have seen a similar level of takeoff. So it's kind of like we've got lots of grounds for optimism. It's just the unevenness of those transitions, the fact that they won't occur globally, and they're predominantly occurring in the global north. And we still have a world, unbelievably, it's 2022. I'm still waiting for my moon colonies and flying cars. <laughs> and we still have a world in which 800 million people don't have any electricity hmm. and 2 billion people cook with solid fuels. Two billion people cook with the same technology that was around when Jesus Christ was walking around this earth two millennia ago. Hmm. So I think that's the issue. How do we also transition this global south uh, to electrify and adopt modern lifestyles, which they need for their health and for their progress and for their happiness, without damaging the climate? And now for our feature story, we turn to South Africa. South Africa is one of the first testing grounds for just transition policy. Four-fifths of that country's energy comes from coal, but policymakers there are trying to change that. Here's South African President Cyril Ramaphosa talking about this transition recently. While the energy transition is necessary for reducing global carbon emissions, 
the transition that we have to embark on must be a fair and a just one. Making such a dramatic change will not be easy. So we wanted to know firsthand what it's like for a community when its main economic driver shuts down. This fall, we sent reporter Elna Schutz to South Africa's coal country. Her destination was the town of Komati, where a plant operated by ESCOM, South Africa's leading coal producer, had just closed. Komati is a small, quiet town in rural South Africa in the Mpumalanga province. Really small. The kind where chickens run in between the houses, which are all older brick buildings, and look a bit the same. Everyone seems to know each other, and the guest house I stay in even performs a welcoming song for me. But over this quaint community loom grey towers and chimneys. The town has the same name as one of the oldest power plants in the country, built in the 1960s, and with good reason. The fate of Komati village has long relied on that of the plant and its accompanying mines. But ward cancer Edward Nyambi explains that just a few days before I visit, in November 2022, everything has changed. On Monday, they were shutting down the power station. So we as a community and the people that were working there, we are very, very disappointed. But we cannot do anything on that because they have explained to us that the power station is too old. Kansan Nyambi is in a tricky situation. On the one hand, his community needs jobs and investments, like clinics and more public spaces. But on the other, the power utility and ESCOM have long supported the area and have to fulfil their climate commitments. In fact, all of Komati is stuck in this balance. We can theorise a lot about how a just energy transition should work, but here's an example of what it actually looks like on the ground when it happens. We are entering into this just energy transition phase by converting that, that power station into these three technologies, the wind, photovoltaic and natural gas. That's Sikunati Manchancha, the national spokesperson for the country's power utility, ESCOM. And we are training the, the staff that was working at the power station to actually be technicians that can build, that can assemble and that can maintain the renewable energy components at that power station. He says that while renewable energy does use less workers than coal, they are trying to ensure that new partnerships and investments are sustainable and involve the communities that have long benefited from coal. For instance, the World Bank has been working closely with the government and ESCOM for many years. Here's the country director for Southern Africa, Marie-Francoise Marie-Nelly. Uh, we provided uh, technical support to identify the needs in terms of uh, decommissioning uh, of um, plant. Uh, at the moment, uh, we are supporting a program financed by the Climate Technology Fund to uh, establish and install uh, battery storage, about 200 megawatts. But we've been now working with ESCOM on their decommissioning programs. And the first operation is the, uh, the Comati project. But we are now looking at um, the uh, accelerating coal transition uh, support uh, financed by the uh, CIF, 
the Climate Investment Fund that will help the Commission and repurpose additional power plants. ESCOM has a formal just transition team that's looking into helping in multiple areas. Some of the strategies for Mpumalanga include leasing ESCOM-owned land to renewable independent power producers and improving power station infrastructure like transformers to unlock more capacity. Of course, there is the coal station repurposing, but ESCOM is also planning agreements with the mobile communications industry around virtual wheeling, which is basically a way to link renewable power producers with end users. In a virtual dialogue, Noela Molefe, a senior advisor from the ESCOM team, talked about how the existing energy infrastructure in this part of South Africa is a key reason why jobs should be able to remain in the area. So Mpumalanga is very uh, well endowed with a lot of resources and can easily become the energy hub for the energy transition and is more likely to transition more quickly than any other place in the country. Most of the power stations were are situated in Bumalanga and therefore we have the grid that is already readily available to connect the renewable energy. So that is one um, positive aspect for Mpumalanga, as well as the people. Um, We've just reflected on the unemployment rates, and there are approximately 200,000 people that can be trained or reskilled to work in the renewable energy sector. While the future is bright, the immediate implementation is tricky. On that Monday, the plant is decommissioned, and some of the workers or contractors are sent home. On the Thursday, ESCOM hosts a town hall consultation in Kamati. Many attendees are reacting to the company's plans with scepticism and division. Margaret Mashlangu was born in the area and has lived in Kamati since the 80s. She's worked at the power station for many years, hopping from one contract to another with different service providers. She says working for the coal plant is all she's known. I started as um, a general worker, which was a cleaning service, accommodations and logistics. Her latest contract ended a few weeks ago, with no clear prospect of a new one on the horizon now that the station is decommissioned. Yeah, that is very difficult because there's nothing that you can do. So when you work, especially on contracts, it's like from hand to mouth. You cannot invest on anything. With a lot of the immediate plans focused on moving or reskilling full-time employees, ESCOM and the government are aware of the importance of contract workers. Here's the World Bank's Marie-Francoise again. So there will be a number of opportunities for the employees to be trained. And already, ESCOM has established uh, on the uh, Comati side a Comati training facility that will indeed help direct employees, but also the contract workers, also local community members and others through a specialised industry-related and accredited training programme. Margaret is trying to help herself and the community in the shorter term by growing vegetables on a small plot of land. Still, she feels that the people on the ground aren't being helped. So people will survive. We will live with or without, even though we know that there are people who are going to benefit even more. Not even thinking about the people that on the ground, how do they survive like now? You can't just move to another place to work. This is Carlos Villanculas. He used to be a welder at the power station. He worries about finding a new job. Yeah, the, the future, it's 50-50. It's like a coin. I might say we're going to win 
and I can also say we're going to lose. So we will just wait and see. And it's not just those working directly for the power station who are concerned. Thompson Tatosibia is a primary school teacher. They should have come up with a plan on how we are going to make a living. He says that the plans that are given so far are just not concrete enough. When we ask now, what are the incentives? In the process that you are reskilling, what are the benefits? No benefit. They are not saying anything. They are saying we, we will think about stipends, we will think about this and this. So we will just go and attend classes on empty stomach. There are a lot of questions swirling around tonight and the answers offered by the ESCOM representatives seem to be doing little to assuage the concerns in the room. What did we miss? While the consultants and power utility representatives are clearly trying to come up with solutions in a difficult situation, for the community members suddenly sitting without jobs, the future is scary. Here's Margaret again. If you're going to phase out the coal and you're going to close the power station that is using the coal, I'm thinking of my nine-year-old today that in my age, when she reaches my age, how is she going to survive? My child is still at school. She doesn't even know what is happening around her. Margaret is glad there are consultations happening, but she feels they are somewhat lacking. They've consulted with the portion, a small portion of the community, and the information that was convicted, it was never given to the community at large. But the ESCOM spokesperson, Zikunati Manchancha, is more optimistic about the longer-term future. The reality, though, is you may see initially when the power stations close some job losses, but over time you start a new industry altogether. This will be a net job uh, creator. There are estimated 300,000 jobs to be created out of renewables in, the, in, in those areas over the next 20 years, which is way more than uh, you currently have in coal and can ever have. Marie-Francoise from the World Bank explains that in the shorter term, various projects, like the Renewable Energy Training Centre at Kumati, will roll out in the next year or so. So we expect that uh, in the course of 2023, we should be able to already see uh, activities on ground. It will be a learning process as uh, activities are being implemented. Uh, there will be a feedback loop to be able to make the adjustment. It's the first one. It is a pilot one. Uh, we expect to learn from it, uh, correct as we move, and certainly use the lesson learned for future decommissioning of additional plants. Filling the gap between what's planned and the reality on the ground will take a collective effort that all these different players, from ESCOM to the government, are trying to make central. The frustration in the room is palpable. Lives are being disrupted. But the hope is that the investments being made today will pay off not just for the climate, but for the community as well, explains Marie-Francoise. What uh, we understand is that for one job lost, uh, there will be two or even three new jobs created. Unfortunately, uh, the challenges are that uh, the jobs may not be created in the same area where they will be uh, lost. And secondly, the new job may not be able to occur at the same time. So that means that there is a need to have a proper strategy to support not only the employees, but also the communities.
While plans have been put down on paper, whether this all works out is another question. On the next episode of Heat of the Moment, I'm heading to a different coal-reliant city to hear directly from those in power about what they can do for Kumati and other towns that are now facing the reality of a closed power plant. As you can hear from that reporting, there are passionate voices on all sides of this issue. Real lives are being affected, and there's no solution that will appease everyone, of course. The transition away from fossil fuels is essential for stabilizing the atmosphere and planet. It has to happen, and it has to happen as quickly as possible. But there's an increasing recognition that fairness must also be part of this shift as well. And we're going to keep exploring these themes throughout the season. For a final thought, let's go back to Benjamin Sovacool, the energy policy professor at Boston University. He says it will take collective action for us to make these massive shifts. And it isn't yet too late. Most recent projections, even published in Nature this year, say a 1.5 degree threshold is still achievable, barely, if we come together. We don't have to become a world in which we have hundreds of millions of climate refugees and thousands of wildfires and massive insurance damage. It's not a foregone conclusion. It's not predetermined. And I think the decisions that we make collectively in the next five to seven years will really shape whether we reach that 1.5 degree target. We still have time if we act now. That was the first episode of Heat of the Moment's third season. To hear the rest of Elna's story, follow Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please follow us. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Rosie Julin and Rom Sachs. I'm Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Thank you so much for listening.